Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special year-end wrap-up edition of the Media Bow Podcast, where all week long we have been wrapping up the year that was 2021. And that includes, of course, the subjects we always talk about, movies, television, video games, and music. Some of them may have already happened, some of them have yet to happen, but today is time for the movies. So how these usually work real quick before I do introductions, in case this is the first time you're listening to this, a wrap-up comes in two parts. We first start our wrap-up podcast by talking about the year that was in news. We wrap up month by month every big news story that happened throughout the year, ultimately choosing one news story to rule them all, what we deem the most important news story of that subject. Then after that, all that homework is done. We get to the fun stuff, which of course is naming our top five favorite movies, each of us, of the year. And then picking one movie to be the Media Boat Podcast movie of the year for 2021. So welcome. Thanks for coming. My name is Matt. His name is Mike. I'm Mike. He's Matt. And I'm so glad we're doing this at the end of the year instead of trying to pre-record yes. this because... A lot of those ended up happening in December, and yeah. we ended up seeing a lot of movies in December. Yeah. And this is kind of where I'm going to put a caveat. I don't like recency bias. I think it's dumb. I think it's stupid. The latest thing that comes out is like <laughs> the, the best, the great, the greatest new thing you've ever seen. Sure. Now, the way we've watched movies, though, is that the best movies come out at the end of the year. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is like, it's not our fault that the movie industry is built that way where the critical darlings come out in December. That's not our fault. So I don't think we should fault lean like too heavily on, oh, but is this recency bias? Because I think that, yeah, that's just a reality of the way that film is distributed. Like it or not. It's of course, you know, the running joke with the Oscars. It's like, oh, I haven't seen that one in theaters yet because it just came out. It's like, yeah, because that's how it works. Right. I mean, that's just how it is. But we'll get to talking about the movies we've seen at the end of the podcast. Yeah, we have to start with, like I said, the first part, which is wrapping up the year that was going month from month, month by month. And that means, of course, going way, way back in time to the month of January. So let's jump into our time machine and go all the way back to January. Yeah, a little bit of deja vu here because, yes, exactly. A little bit of deja vu here because, hey, last January... We were all uh, at home, still, um, still unable to go anywhere because of a uh, because of a a spike in COVID cases. Hey, what do you know? We're there again. Yeah, um, and just like the beginning of this year, as have already been announced, with dates being shuffled along, with SAG and award ceremonies being moved, that's where we began this year, with award shows being moved because of coronavirus and new. Our regulations, including like the Sundance Film Festival not moving forward, SAG being changed around, just everything was kind of in chaos still. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are still in chaos. <laughs> uh, we also um, had the first inklings of, I'm going to put up here, story of the year of uh, MGM and Bond. Uh, yeah. Sorry, not MGM and Bond. MGM being 
purchased by Apple. I think that was this year, right? It did. Yeah. Was that this year, that last year. Oh, geez. Uh, I think we maybe have heard some early inklings about them being up for sale at the end of last year. Um, and then it was a big question mark who had the money to afford it. We tossed mm-hmm. around a- names like Apple and Amazon. Right. Uh, we'll get to that because I think that was like later in the year. Yeah. Uh, but we also had kind of the first big sway into regular news and movie news with the AMC stock. <laughs> And people buying into AMC and AMC quickly raising $917 million in capital to erase all of its debts. Yep, this was uh, one of our um, sister stories to the video game story about GameStop stock, of course. Yep. Uh, let's see here. And yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of COVID news in January. Yeah, a lot of things getting pushed was it was the theme of the year in a lot of ways. Yeah, the theme of this year too, as we got stuff that got pushed back into May, and then ultimately into June, and then stuff got pushed back even into November. That was kind of the theme. The first half of this year was, will we ever get back to a normal release schedule? Right. Are people willing to go to the movies yet? And of course, the first half of the year was when people were first starting to get vaccinated as well. Right. Uh, let's see here. And then we get into February and we had uh, the fall of Blue Sky Studios as Walt Disney decided to close the animation after the animation studio after acquiring 20th Century Fox. Yeah, it was a little case of a studio redundancy, according to Disney. They saw yet another animation studio when they already own several and just decided it wasn't worth keeping that operating when they could just consolidate. It just says, it's just unfortunate that they could have done better by those employees than just shutting down all of their jobs. That being said, their work does live on in the form of Disney plus. <laughs> yes. You could say that. <laughs> you can definitely stream those films. Uh, like Rio and the Ice Age stuff. I mean, even the Ice Age animation is getting its own spinoff on Disney Plus right now. Yeah. So some form of it does live on. But goodbye, Blue Sky Studios. Yeah. Now, now it's Gray Skies. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Let's see here. Oh, yeah. We also had in February the first talk and casting news of the Borderlands movie. Still yeah. on track to come out next year. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm not really sure who really cares. Right, I mean, especially when you have what, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kate Blanchett, and Kevin Hart cast as Roland. <laughs> it's quite a lineup, but like... it's. I don't know. At yeah, this point, I don't know just, who this film is going to be for, though. Yeah, you could ask the same question about the Uncharted movie, which is also um, due out very soon. It's just it seems like these, it's like the people who enjoy these video games, 
I don't know. I feel like I don't know if they're look they're begging for a movie in these universes. I mean, I think this is a part of what we've always been talking about, which is franchises and expanding media. Take what people know, whether it be franchise or nostalgia, and you bank on it. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. Uh Oh, and the first leak that would be dominating all the leaks of the year, Spider-Man. As yes. titled Spider-Man No Way Home was officially revealed this year, as well as all the leaks that came out of it. And we'll get to Spider-Man in December. <laughs> <laughs> sure will. Yep. Let's see here. Then we get into March and we talk about uh, the Alamo Draft House. Filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yeah. And that was this year. That was this year. <laughs> believe it or not. Um, yeah. yeah it's, 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 this it was part of an of... agreement uh, with, with Altamount Capital Partners uh, buying them. Or, yeah, buying them as well as the new backer, uh, Fortress Investment Group. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, because they filed for Chapter 11, several of the chains did close down, but not all of them. It was more restructuring debt rather than a full, complete closure. As I think we'll get into later with Alamo Draft House kind of partnering with and expanding into new territories of Los Angeles and New York. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's, it's good to see one of the most uh, prominent independent theater chains bounced back from what looked like a dark time last year. Yep. Uh, then we had our Academy Award nominations late in the year, but we'll get to that uh, when we get to the actual awards. Yeah. Um. We had event or Avatar re-becoming the highest grossing movie after a re-release. So congratulations to Avatar. Your sequel will still escape us forever. For whoever's looking at it. Yeah. Oh, we also had the movie pass um fake out this year. <laughs> right. Where it was gonna come back and then didn't. <laughs> yeah so much for that now that's just someone trolling the media by putting up a movie pass countdown on a fake movie pass website as like hey if i just put a countdown on a website people will start talking about it see <laughs> manipulating media and you know what it worked hey it worked got, got us to talk about it <laughs> uh yep and then we had the continuing shifting schedule of I'll put it for story of the year. When will Black Widow come out? <laughs> yeah. Black Widow, yes. The the saga that that movie had over the course of 2021 from being pushed back to then being uh, scheduled for 
um, the premium streaming on Disney Plus, then to being pulled from stream, uh, and then being like, 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 kind of chastised for that by star Scarlett Johansson, to then watching the other Marvel movies not debut in um, Disney Plus form and make sometimes as as much as Spider Man two times as much money. Yeah, so Black Widow, story of the year. I think nominee. it's up there. It's up there. It might not be one of the strongest entrants, but it's definitely just like it's it's emblematic of a larger thing, which is Disney trying to figure out their approach to balancing Disney Plus releases with theatrical releases. There was also the problematic approach of the ever shifting release calendar, as we still didn't know what a stable box office would look like post-pandemic. Right. It's also interesting in a way because it's also a pivot point for Marvel movies. It was the first one in a long time for a lot of people. And it felt like kind of nothing. I mean, we talked about it on this podcast. It's probably not going to show up in either of our lists this year because it was kind of disappointing. It was a Marvel movie that felt like it was a placeholder for the next step. It felt like it should have come out years ago and that coming out now, it just seemed lost in an island by itself. It didn't even seem like it was setting up much except for Hawkeye. Um, And then you look at the next two releases, Shang-Chi and Spider-Man, and and they did way better. Of course, Eternals here is an outlier. Right. Um, it but still outperformed Black Widow. Well, I mean, yeah, because Black Widow was a film that is a prequel. Well, not a prequel, but it takes place before the current MCU events, but it's also the first film in the new Phase 4 events. Right. So where does it land? And that's <laughs> the weird thing with it that it never quite hit is where did it land with the audiences? It's like a, a weird back step but side step but forward step all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> right I, don't know, I yeah. say that the whole everything about it should be at least nominated yeah because it, it was a running thing on on our podcast Uh, let's see here. We also had Eddie Murphy being inducted into the NAACP Image Awards Hall of Fame. Right. This was, of course, following uh, the release of his new film, Coming to America 2, or Coming to America. Yeah, Coming to America. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man, this thing came and went, didn't it? Yep. Uh, let's see here. We also, um, is that all it in April then or in March? <laughs> wow, we're just cruising through. Yeah, I think it, awards. it was just a light week or light year, <laughs> I mean, week year for um, for movies. It just mm-hmm. feel like a lot happened, things came out, and but there were more delays. Like, can you believe Top Gun Maverick still hasn't come out? Right. <laughs> we finally saw No Time to Die, but it just didn't make an impact. 
Well, I'll try to figure out when the actual Academy Awards happened because I know they happened. They did. They they ha- I think they were in late February, early March. No, because yeah, I'm trying to find like where we talked about it, but I don't see yeah. it. Not sure. First details regarding the ceremony. Oh, right there. Take place uh, March 5th through the 9th. Which we didn't even talk about until... Here it is. No. Oh, that's why They were in April. They were late. They were in April. April 25th. That's why we can't, ah, we can't find them yet. That does make sense. So yeah, so let's get into April then, shall we? <laughs> and we had the first inklings of box office monster with Godzilla versus Kong making oh. 71 million in the national markets. Yes, Godzilla versus Kong was this year. That was this year. <laughs> oh. Yep. Uh, we also had a Two different deals being struck with Netflix, one being with uh, director Ryan Johnson for, for releasing the sequels to Knives Out, both Knives Out 2 and 3, whatever they're going to be called, as well as a deal with Netflix and Sony for the exclusive U.S. rights to stream Sony Pictures um, first after a theatrical window. Mm-hmm. That's also a running thing of Netflix continuing to buy things. But then again, that's always the story of Netflix, at least for the past three years. Less buying content from other people and more making deals with actual content creators or distributors. Yeah. Let's see here. Uh, Academy Award. Oh, right here, here it is. That's what I'm looking for. There's the Academy Awards. Uh, but we also had. Uh, but we also had other awards, including Soul. Right. Uh, winning for. Uh, several Annie Awards. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Denzel Washington's uh, film, which came out this past Christmas, the first announcement for it, A Journal for Jordan, starring Michael B. Jordan. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That just, yeah, that recently came out, right? Yep. I even have the notes here. Expected to release against Matrix 4, Sing 2, and The Kingsman for Christmas Day. <laughs> and it all did happen. Um, it all came all, to fruition. Yes, which you're living in that week right now. Yep. But let's get to the Academy Awards, as that was the story for April. Yeah. Oh, what a weird year. I mean, all right. I think going in, everybody expected a Nomadland to be the favorite, and it did end up winning the big, big, big awards, you know, uh, best picture director, 
Have you seen Nomadland? Yeah. Does it deserve it? I thought so. It was my favorite movie of last year, if you remember correctly. Mm, I thought you saw it after. No, I watched it before the end of the year because it was on Hulu. Okay. It made sense to me. It made sense to you. No, the one that I watched late that I was like, what the hell was Mank? (laughs) I was like, this did not deserve anything. No, but it did win production and cinematography. (laughs) Uh, But the big kind of, well, one, the awards were took place in the train station, the LA Union uh, train station. And then it was shot by Steven Soderbergh. So had the weird film-esque look to it. Yeah, I kind of liked how it was presented. I feel like one of the coolest parts about this year was watching award shows experiment, mm-hmm. like the Oscars with that presentation, the Grammys with their three-stage setup. I liked it. I, I hope we see some more experimentation early next, early next year because we're going to be in the same bucket we are now. <laughs> I mean, they're already planning for it. Yeah, so they're going to have to probably revisit some of these techniques. Yep. And while uh, Nomadland was the big winner with both Best Picture and Director and Actress for Frances McDormand, Mm -hmm. the surprise came at the end of the night when they went, when they gave away Best Picture, Best Director, they gave away every award except for Best Actor. Yeah, so... And the person they wanted to win didn't win. Yeah, this was the weirdest part of the night. It was the thing everybody was talking about the day after. You tease a posthumous award and don't give it to the dude. Every previous award went to Chadwick Boseman for Mm -hmm. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And every award up until then was going to Chadwick Boseman posthumously. So you assume yeah. he's the one who's going to win it. And it's the most wild thing, though, is that the assumption must have gone all the way to the top because there's no other reason they would have saved that award to last. Right, because what you want, typically, is everyone from the best picture on stage waving goodbye. That's the shot. That's the, always the ending shot. And, and now, that, for the next 50 years, they will never deviate from that. No, yeah, they'll never see, do that again. <laughs> yeah, because instead it was just awkward. It was yep. just like, everybody was just so shocked. That it was not only was it shocking, but you had the winner, not even there. Yeah. But even if he was yeah. there, he would have been from the London telecast. So you'd have to jump over there. Yeah, it was just nonsense. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, being around the bush here, congratulations to Sir Anthony Hopkins <laughs> for his second ever Academy Award. Right. And first for a lead actor. I definitely misremembered that he was still alive earlier this <laughs> calendar year. So thank you for reminding me that not only is he still alive, but he is also uh, the most recent actor. Uh, a best actor winner in the odds. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. Because yes, that happened this year. That did happen this year. It just feels like it was 15 years ago. Somehow. Yep. 
Anyway. Anyways, uh, anything else to say about the Academy Awards? I know. I think, yeah, the two most interesting things about it were the presentation of it and that fiasco with Best Actor. Yep. All right. Moving on then into May, we had Cinemark announcing not necessarily the deal with Netflix, but we get to that eventually. But kind of the first step towards it, where they kind of took the big giant leap in making a deal with Netflix in presenting Netflix films on the big screen with Zack Snyder's, or sorry, Snack Ziders, Army of the Dead. <laughs> Yeah, Snack Zider. I mean, yeah. we said it at the time, and we, I still think that this is probably smart on Cinemark's case. In fact, I remember fairly recently we had a follow-up story of sorts about Cinemark saying that this was actually pretty successful for them. Yeah, and that they were going to uh, make a deal, for, at least for the next three years, to continue this. It's smart. Strength. I think right now you want to be the chain that may that is friends with Netflix because Netflix is the scrappy newcomer trying to get a foothold further foothold into award season. And the way you do that is have theater chains, show your movies in theaters to bypass that non-streaming rule. So it really works for both involved cinemark gets to increase its notoriety among the bigger theater chains and Netflix gets to be in a physical place. No, it's a smart, yeah, it's a smart deal. No, it's a smart deal. Yes, no, yes, you're right. No, yes. No. (laughs) No. Yep. Uh, We also had a media boat favorite, Lord Miller, Chris Lord and Phil Miller, making a deal with uh, Universal Pictures. Yeah, which should be pretty good. I mean, they had kind of a quiet year this year. Um, they produced Mitchell's versus the machines, but otherwise were supposedly work toiling away on whether they're going to work on next. Ah, there it is. In June. Uh, the, yeah, no, sorry. In May, the deal for uh, Amazon to acquire MGM for $9 billion. Yes. Was making the rounds. So, yeah, after we had kind of tossed around Amazon as a possibility, we, we picked tossed up around our, Apple about yeah, we, possibility. We picked up our phones and said, called it because, yeah, they ended up being the big winner. Um, we still have yet to see the fallout from this, um, except for that one passing statement that somebody had made that they said that they weren't going to, somebody in the James Bond camp. Yeah, the Broccoli family. Yeah, they weren't going to let, yes, the Broccoli's, the delicious Broccoli's, um, said they were not going to let them adapt it into a TV show. But that was pretty much all we saw. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. That they would keep James Bond as a theatrical experience. Right. But yeah, this would, this gives them a huge catalog of things. MGM has a storied history with both movies and television, this is why you make this purchase. You don't do it just for James Bond. You do it because they have a bunch of other things you can take advantage of. So we'll see how Amazon does it. 
Yep. Um, the official sale was $8.45 billion because that $150 million, or sorry, the extra $550 million, yeah, they don't need it. Yeah. $8.45 billion. Billion. That's a billion with a M. With a B. <laughs> yeah, that's not how... No. It's not an mm billion. Mm billion. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it should be because like mm, billion. <laughs> if you have that much money, wouldn't you go mm, billions? I mean, I might not, but you can go for it. <laughs> More power to you. Yep. Okay. Right. Let's get to June. Let's get into June. Let's get into June and we talk about people who are vaccinated versus people who aren't vaccinated going to a movie theater. Yeah. During the summer, we saw the numbers uh, for vaccination probably peak, and it just kind of unfortunately went down from there. Well, the number of new will always go down from there. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, But yes, movie theater chains uh, no longer required fully vaccinated guests to wear face masks per the new CDC guidelines. And if I remember correctly, this lasted like, what, a month? (laughs) A month, I think, (laughs) because right before July 4th, they said, oh, no, we don't want another spike. Yeah. Yeah, June makes sense for that timeline because this was also around the same time that a lot of states were easing their restrictions. Here in California, um, June 15th was that magic day where it's like, here, you can go do things again. And yeah, it was great for a couple months. Yep. Uh, we also had, real briefly, Ava DuVernay partnering with Google for a $500,000 feature film grant available. Yeah. Uh, of, huh? Yeah. I was going to say, well, that's one of many kind of uh, philanthropic moves that a lot of filmmakers made this year. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of uh, smaller grants or funds um, created in partnership with these bigger tech companies to get younger talent, um, younger right. and marginalized talent uh, starting to make movies. Which is yeah. Cool. We uh, talked about how, the studio animation studio Leica uh, contributed a hefty sum to HBCUs and right. offered a direct um, partnership to their studio for new voices and talent. Yeah. And we have other um, story of the year nomination. Ayatsi. <laughs> yeah. I feel like all the way up to the actual conclusion <laughs> conclusion of this, this seemed like this is going to be the story of the year. You finally had Cruz, the backbone of movies and TV, standing up for their rights, demanding better terms, demanding health care, demanding better hours. And it looked like it was going to happen. It seemed like there was going to be a majority vote. But then, but then, the 11th hour... None other than the Editor's Guild, right? It was the Editor's Guild? Um, no, last time it was the Editor's Guild. Oh. Who was, the, who was the monkey wrench this time? Uh, that was in October. We'll get to that. Yeah, I, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there was some sort of reason why the vote didn't pass, and it was because one part of the, the, the union was basically 
the majority and well no we're gonna hit ourselves because they had voted to strike mm-hmm. and then they reached a deal in the 11th hour yeah and i think it was uh well they, they signed out did we talk about it <laughs> well regardless what i'm saying is is that the anticlimactic ending of this is why i don't think it quite makes it right because there was a deal made but it wasn't the deal they wanted they had to make so many concessions that it might that it seems like there are a lot of people think they're still at square one with these negotiations negotiations barely happened right a tentative deal was made to stave off uh, the mass strike which included 10 hours off between shift for all workers and a 54-hour weekend and higher pay rates. But the thing that they wanted was the streaming services to start paying their dues for residuals and pension and health plans, and they didn't get that. Yeah. The most basic things they wanted. Kind of like the reasons why they were striking in the first place. So, yeah, that's why I'm, like, hesitant to say, even though it was a recurring story this year, the ending was just so depressing. Here's the ending. Well, they're going to be that way for three years, though. It was the Editor's Guild, yeah. They had the Editor's Guild, the 73 votes that made up the Editor's Guild voted against it. Contract would have gone down to defeat. Yes. No, you were right. It was the Editor's Guild. And you had had, I remember you had said something when we recorded that podcast. Uh, it was reversed uh, the other way before for the previous uh, guild, or was right. talk about the animation? Right, 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 right. Animation but yeah, guild, so, but yeah. No, yeah, it's just it was so anticlimactic that it's like, and so disappointing that it's like all that kind of for nothing. But I mean, it was a fifty forty nine vote in favor. So come three years. Yeah, we'll see. We're going to be right here back in this same predicament. Yeah. 2024. It's just unfortunate. That's all. Yep. All right. Uh, Let's see here. We're back in uh, July, right? Something like that. (laughs) June? Oh, yeah. June. June. Uh, Academy Awards, new rules. Yeah, let's go to July then. Yeah, let's move ahead. We had Peacock. Yes. Yes. That streaming service, Peacock, uh-huh. making a multi-year deal uh, with Universal titles. Real quick, just saying, because I don't really have a, a format to say this in. Peacock really came into its own this year, in my opinion. We've been watching so much Peacock here. Oh, we watch a lot of Peacock, too. We, it's our binge, to-go binge shows when we're not watching sports or holiday specials. Yeah, Christy watches it every morning. Uh, it's been it, it's been key in the holiday season with the Baking It show that we were watching. It's had some surprising movies. Like I watched uh, MacGruber and we watched Die Hard on Christmas Eve. Thanks to <laughs> Peacock. Um, yeah, yeah, I watched uh, Trolls 2 or <laughs> Trolls World Tour because of it. Yeah, it has come in clutch in ways that I didn't anticipate it would. Mm-hmm. Um, so good on, good on Peacock uh, for... Getting the most improved award for 2021. <laughs> yep. Let's see here. Uh, also in July, we had the release of Black Widow 2 at the time, biggest gen- biggest box office opening 
of $80 million its yeah. first weekend. And that feels like nothing now compared to Spider-Man. <laughs> Drop in the bucket. $80 million. Yeah, but $80 million first post-pandemic. Yeah. Plus the premier access, which was about an additional $60 million plus over the weekend. Which again goes to show you that the even the lowest most... Uh, the lowest performing Marvel movie this year was still set a record. People still want to see those movies. It's just to varying degrees. Right. I mean, it combined with the international box office for $218 million opening weekend. Yeah. And I think eventually it topped out about 400, 500 worldwide. Yeah. Which again is great until you start comparing it to Spider-Man, which hit 400 and it's, yeah, like, that's why you don't compare things to Spider-Man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just undone everything, like all the records that preceded it this year. Yeah, we'll get to Spider-Man, though. We'll get to Spider-Man. Uh, we have the announcement of Studio Ghibli making its own Ghibli Museum in my Taka, in the city of Maitaka, which is outside Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, HBO Warner Brothers um, doubling down on HBO Max, confirming that it will produce at least 10 movies a year for HBO Max. Yeah, you had it was interesting to watch the streaming services and the studios who run them go back and forth with their approach to streaming. We had so many stories about now it's going to be this 45 day window. Now it's going to be 60 day window. Like we had so many stories that were just, when are they going to put it on streaming? Because that's how people will will be watching it. If they know they only have to wait 45 days. Oh, it might be out of the cultural zeitgeist by then. But at the same time, it saves you money and kind of sanity of going to a theater. It was certainly studios trying to find a balance between mm-hmm. the two worlds because, you know, our story of the year last year was, of course, COVID changing the movie business. And I don't necessarily retract that. I think it still did because stories like this are proof that the studios now realize that this taught them a valuable lesson that they can make a lot of money putting these things on streaming within a reasonable time. It's just now is the growing pains of figuring out what that reasonable time is. How long is reasonable? How long will the studio with the will the movie chains deal with? They're, are they going to say yes to 60? Are they going to say yes to 45? It seems like more and more we're seeing 45 being this magic new number. Unless you're Cinemark and what you say, oh, we'll take it a week before you put it on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the opposite rule. <laughs> just for the besties at Netflix. Um, yeah, it's... So, yeah, it's weird in re- to reflect back on last year's story because it didn't... It wasn't, I guess, a complete change. But what it was is a halfway change, is that they the studios now realize that this is a viable market for them. And from now on, it's going to be an also. It's going to be, yes, theaters, but also... Which is the big change. Right, because we have AMC and Cinemark and Regal making a deal with Warner Brothers in August for that 45-day window. That's now becoming the new standard. It used to be 60. Right. It used to be 90. Used to be back 90. in the day. Yeah. Yeah. 90s was, 90 was the golden number. And mm-hmm. I feel like cutting that in half is going to 
I mean, I honestly think it's great. I think cutting that number to 45 is going to get a lot of people, a lot more people to watch movies, period. In a world of streaming and instant and news travels at the speed of light. It just makes sense. It makes sense. You because can't people, stick to archaic ways. And if Spider-Man proved anything, <laughs> is that the people who want to see a movie in theaters will do it. Nothing will stop them. You just have to make it something worthwhile to see them, which is why, as we talked about in December, they're doubling down and tripling down on the number of franchises coming out next year. Yeah, this is the dark side of that. Um, so whereas streaming allows a lot more freedom and maybe some certain kinds of movies that would not necessarily be big blockbuster releases for studios, it means that you're right. They have to double down on the sure things when they do dedicate a movie to theaters. It's the, it's the other edge of that sword. Whereas if you get the freedom of streaming, it also means that theater movies get riskier and riskier. And as they get riskier, they're going to go for the home runs every time. And that means sequels. It means um, no new IPs, franchises. Look into that treasure chest of the vault that you have and see what you can dust off and say, we make it. When we get to our top fives, we're going to have some conversations about franchise films and because there are at least two movies that we will most likely talk about. I can guarantee that we'll talk about that are, are essentially contra- like conversations in themselves about the franchises that they are in. Yes. And it's fascinating to have that conversation as well as movies on our list that were uni- one-of-a-kind unicorns that exist against the norm and are amazing, wonderful movies because of it. But we'll get there. But we'll get there. Little tease as we'll get Little there. Little tease. Um, but um, going back here, um, retreading our steps. In August, we had Black Widow and Scarlett Johansson suing because of the success of Shang-Chi. Yes. Um, we also had Reese Witherspoon um, selling her production company, Hello Sunshine. For just under a billion dollars to the Blackstone Group, which is still unnamed yes. capital venture. The mysterious Blackstone. <laughs> At least they don't have a creepy name like uh, the Embracer Group does. We talked about on the regular podcast last week. Yep. Embracer. You can get embraced. Let's see here. We also had uh, Emma Stone signing up for a Cruella sequel, which you still have not seen. I know, we'll get to it. <laughs> uh, and then we get into September. And a look back at the COVID box office with Top Gun still not coming out. <laughs> <laughs> we will eventually see that movie. It'll be out someday. Yep. Being summer, delayed. Next summer, I think, right now it's currently slated. Currently for um, May 27th, 2022. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we will just, yeah, May, uh, who knows? Hopefully we're in a different place in May. Yep. We'll see. Uh, let's see here. We also had Christopher Nolan 
moving away from Warner Brothers and signing his next um, film centered on the uh, atomic bomb and J. Robert Oppenheimer with Universal. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it made sense. It seemed like he was getting frustrated with Warner's treatment of Tenet. Yep. So he was, you know, he was getting stir crazy and makes sense that Universal would go to the table with them. Looks like they paid a pretty penny, though. Um, apparently, 20% of the first dollar gross of in this next movie goes straight to Nolan. Yeah, but what's 20% of 10 million? A lot of money. <laughs> Turns out a no, lot. Two million. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, that's quite a payday. Well, that's the thing that his film has to hit. Well, it's so it's opening weekend, twenty percent of opening weekend, right? First dollar. So, for Nolan, you have to open to at least a hundred billion to make twenty million. But Christopher Nolan is also somebody who routinely does that. Tenet was an exception, and I guess he's thinking it was the pandemic. He's thinking it was Warner, and so he's well. Warner also kept shifting its release date. So that's why I think he's taking a little bit of a risk here being like, I'll do this again, but with a different company and let's see what happens. And you're also getting a hundred day window for Nolan. Yeah. Maybe we'll see. Um, yeah. I don't tend it's a weird one because I feel like, whereas some people it's like some people, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for Christopher Nolan. I know a lot of people just did not like that movie, but then I, I hear a lot of, Nolan, uh, like apologists say that it's one of his best. So it's like it was such a divisive thing. I liked it. Yeah, you were one of the few positive voices I heard about it. Well, it was different. It it was unexpected. It's also one of the things where we'll we'll look back on it and be like, "Yeah, that was interesting." (laughs) I suppose so. I mean. Kind of same way, like you look back at Dunkirk, or people who do eventually do look back at Dunkirk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see here. What else happened? Nothing else happened in September, really. Yeah, slow, slow, slow. Rest of the year from here on out, pretty much. Pretty much, because we got because uh, then we get to October, and we have the vote to strike, and then staved off the strike for Yahtzee. Mm-hmm. We had uh, Scarlet. I was say Scarlet Witch, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> and Disney making the deal. Right. Uh, settlement uh, over the Black Widow. Oh, and then we have in October our our final story of the year nomination. For sure, yeah. Alec Baldwin and the set of Rust. It's interesting in a year where we almost had a crew strike that we had something horrific happen behind the scenes of a movie on a movie set these two things these stories i feel like are related and it just goes to show you that chaos can lead to danger and this is a perfect example of that Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be using loaded guns of any kind in an era where you can digitally make a gun um that came out or sorry, um, 
Dwayne Johnson's production company came out from this and said that no matter what the cost is, they will use live ammo on set and they'll digitize everything in post. Right. But yes, it is more costly to do that in post, but it's also the safer way. Yeah, and what is the cost ultimately of a human life? Right. Probably more. So it's like, yeah, it's it's a complicated story. I feel like there's a parallel also to the story that we talked about in the music episode with Travis Scott and Astroworld. There's so many moving parts. There's a lot of places you can put the blame. Here that you can put the blame on, okay, whose idea was to have this gun? Who's Who was holding the gun when it was fired? Who was like monitoring the safety of the set? There's so many layers to the story that you kind of almost have to zoom out and be like, okay, but what is the actual lesson we're learning here? And yeah, it's a combination of things. I think there is, you know, there's validity to what Dwayne Johnson uh, is saying here, which is we just don't need real guns on set. I think there's validity to be like, we need better um, and a better environment for, for crews, better control over props. And we need to have better training for the people who are going to be wielding these things. I think all three is true and can coexist. Right. It's, I mean, going back to the IATSE, this is part of a union armament. Um, these are rules that they need to follow and that they sign off with. Um, there is the huge question of, why are they shooting in New Mexico to save money, to skirt rules, to for production value? Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of questions. A lot of questions you could ask here. Yep. Um, but yeah, um, we haven't said it, but yeah, Alec Baldwin discharged a prop gun, killing cinematographer. Uh, Halna Hutchins and wounded director Joel Seuss while on the set of Rust. Right. Also, to kind of move around a corner a little bit on this and talk about a different part of this that we haven't talked about yet, this is going to look really weird when Rust finally comes out. <laughs> if. Yeah, if it does. <laughs> like, it'll be like a fascinating like effect if people remember this story by the time that's actually a movie people can see. I mean, the last time something of this magnitude happened was The Crow, and right. that still got a release. So. Yeah, but you could argue that that story was so prominent that it affected that movie's performance. It did not do well. It was mm-hmm. kind of a box office bomb. Whether that's 100% due to the tragic accident, I don't know. But it's definitely in the conversation. Probably was in the conversation then. Yep. All right. Um, yes, yeah, so let's put a pin in that for story of the year. And let's move our way into November, where we have Weta. Yes, that Weta. Um, being acquired by Unity Software. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the video game company Unity for $1.625 billion. Yeah. And makes sense to me. I mean, I talked about this when we reported the story originally, but in an era where Unreal, Epic's Unreal Engine is being like so intertwined with the movie industry, and that's going back and forth, 
Uh, one of the things I haven't been able to talk about yet because we haven't done a regular podcast since I did this is I ended up uh, downloading and trying out that Matrix demo thing um, that they put out. Uh, they announced at the Game Awards. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating example of this push and pull that's happening right now between effects for video games and effects for movies. So it makes sense that Unity, which is a base level software for making video games that most indie developers are, are, are aware of, it seems like a brilliant idea to bring in Weta technology and Weta experience and employees into that realm because then they can cater to both industries at once. Right. And they're also going to spin off part of Weta's kind of digital suite into its own service, much like Adobe yeah. does with its creative cloud services. Yeah. And much like what Epic is doing with the entertainment arm of Unreal. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it, the line is blurring, I think, is what we're seeing between effects, visual effects in film and visual effects in video games. That's going to be the same thing. We're already seeing them kind of become the same thing, and it's only going to get to continue to going that direction. I think. Yeah, while not um, big enough for story of the year, it's I think a trend. Yeah, it's definitely a trend. Yeah. Something of note. Oh yeah, I think maybe is this is the setup for what may be a story of the year next year when we see this really come into come into view. Right. And then uh, we have Ayatsi ratifying for a three-year deal. League tuning news coming out of Rust. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there it is. Cinemark um, yep. and deal with Netflix. Yep. Continuing, just keeping that train rolling and why not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yep. And then we get into December where we have Apple's Coda and Netflix's The Lost Daughter and um, the power or power of the dog being early front, every early favorites in award season and for Academy Awards nominations. Yeah, and the very beginning of the award season that, of course, continues into this month and next month and the next couple months after that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then so, we had uh, unions around the globe following suit from IATSE. Mm-hmm. being ratified and trying to get new deals yeah yeah if anything the uh, that's kind of one silver lining on the Yahtzee story is that even though their uh effort kind of fell short it did inspire other unions to start thinking about making the same moves on a global scale so if it is the baby steps towards a more firmed up labor movement in entertainment then that's great news yeah, it wasn't just movies too. We kind of saw an overarching theme over this over 2021 of labor movements gaining a lot more ground than they have ever had. Like in the last, like at least since I've been alive. Yep. <laughs> but that does bring us to the kind of the big story in December. Oh yeah, probably, I mean the only real big story in December. <laughs> Well, it was the only story in December uh, as Spider-Man No Way Home demolished the box office and put it back to, I don't want to say pre-pandemic, but 
beyond it. It may beyond it. Yeah, that's the thing about this. And like I said earlier, I'll just repeat myself, is like it proved that there's going to be certain movies that people will see regardless of what's happening in the world. And it, in a way, it proves Scarlett Johansson's point. I hate to riff on this. I hate to give her a win, but this is a win for her. She was right. I think her case against Disney just seems like more and more backed up as the year went on because she's right. If a studio puts out the right movie with the right marketing push, people will go see it regardless of how severe the pandemic is. I mean, as I mean, when it opened, it opened to the third biggest opening ever at 250 million. Yeah. Domestic. Just a ridiculously high number. Like, and then in the two weeks prior, like as of this recording, it has 516 million domestic. It's obnoxious in a year where, and especially now, especially in December where it's not August, you know, in August, I could have seen this happening, but the movies just weren't as strong. And so you have this weird, like weird alternate universe in which people didn't care if there was another spike in COVID cases. They saw Spider-Man regardless because they were always going to see Spider-Man. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, a Spider-Man movie? Of course it will do well because it's a Spider-Man movie. It's why Sony will never let go of (laughs) Spider-Man. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it does. It does like make that argument with Disney. You've seen like null and void at this point. It's like, it's just, there's no argument that Disney has at this point, which is disappointing for the people who want it to be one big happy family, I guess. This is Sony saying, thank you, MCU and Marvel for reinvigorating Spider-Man after we botched uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Right. Sorry, Andrew Garfield. Sorry, Andrew Garfield. <laughs> but here we are with Spider-Man Far From Home. One point uh, one No Way Home. Spider-Man, oh uh, yeah. Spider-Man <laughs> No Way Home. It's okay. I've seen so many people make that mistake. Well, I'm I'm looking gonna... at this slide of this slide. Yeah. I'm going to say I think those two names are too similar to each other. Because you yes. constantly mix them up. Yep. Uh, yeah. Spider-Man No Way Home, $1.16 billion at the box office as of this recording. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, of course, makes it number five of MCU title already. It just proved, like I said, it just proves that these movies still have ca- cultural cachet. And that's not going away. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us to the end of the year, doesn't it? Yeah. That brings us um, to the end of the year. I'm going to say that I think the two front runners here for our story of the year, I think one is Black Widow and the arc of the year in Marvel, where you have basically the beginning of the year, uh, no one's going to see these movies, to the Black Widow fiasco and the Scarlett Johansson uh, lawsuit basically saying you screwed us over by doing this on Disney Plus. Going to kind of the arc with Shang Chi, like oh, did better than people were expecting it. Eternals, good first week, kind of dropped off after that. To Spider Man, which of course, as we just talked about, set record. So, I think it's an interesting story because, 
like I said, it just over the course of the year, Scarlett Johansson ended up being more and more right. Is that Disney was willing to try an experiment. The experiment kind of failed, I guess, in the language that we talk about Marvel movie performance, at least. And then when they put him but out, she, just, but she called him out on it. And when she they, ended up being proven right. And then, yeah, it, to the tune of a record setting number. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not a story that makes me happy, but it's a story that represents where we're at with blockbuster movies right now is that a pandemic could not stop the biggest movie of the year from being the biggest movie of the year, which is not something we could have said last year. So it brings a big question about like the future of these big franchise films. Is it about the movie or is it about the franchise? And I think that we're not sure anymore. I thought we had an answer with 2020 super low performance of basically everything that maybe it wasn't as strong as we thought. Maybe the cultural cachet had gone down. Maybe Like, if you ask me December 2020, if a movie was going to make that big of a splash, I would have said no, absolutely not. And yet here we are basically saying like, okay, everything we thought was wrong. So then we have that in, I think, direct competition with what I think the other seconds, the other big story is, which is still the Yahtzee strike. Yes, it was a little anticlimactic, but you're right. That story we had about the global unions... Um, kind of be inspired by this by the end of the year means that even if it's baby steps, even if it's a movement toward better labor practices, it's still something. It's not nothing. These people got their stories told. They got this movement started. And it could potentially mean way better, a way better looking labor situation and entertainment going forward. It could be the beginnings of something very, very big. Now, does that also include the rust story though? I absolutely think that it does. I think you can roll that into that um, because they're not just looking for better pay. They're looking for better work environment. And that includes making sure that there is not in, that no one is in danger on a film set. It's incredibly important for the future of entertainment that if you're working on a movie that you feel safe, you should not be at any point worried that you are going to die on a movie set. That is, that is just completely unacceptable. So yeah, I 100% agree. This is part of that story is a, a, a union it's one of the union's jobs is to make sure that that never happens again so as much as we talked about Black Widow constantly over this year I think you're right that IATSE story with the unions with the global unions with Rust rolled all into it with better work better pay better conditions that has to be our story of the year I think so, because, yeah, it dovetails really nicely with labor movements that have that are happening across everywhere right now, globally. Uh, we're seeing some real footholds, and especially in entertainment with this and video games. Again, something that happened since our last show that we haven't been able to talk about. But uh, we had our first official accepted video game company union uh, last week. So it's happening. Yep. I Slowly think- but surely. Either last week or the week before, we had 
uh, news of that Starbucks union mm-hmm. in New York. In Buffalo, yeah. And uh, I'm sure many more will, will follow in the footsteps of them. It's, yeah, it's happening slowly but surely. People are finding their worth. It's just unfortunate that there had to be a pandemic to make people think about it. <laughs> but, but it's good it's good news and yeah i think that is the hope of this the hope of this story is is i think worth it to talk about it and story of the year so yeah um yahtzee and the yahtzee union story of the year yeah sounds good i'm good with that so, with our story of the year out of the way, <laughs> now we get to talk about the stuff we actually watched. Okay, this is the fun part. So, it's time to start talking about our top fives. Now, I don't remember in the order we uh, recorded this, I don't remember who went last. <laughs> I don't know, but I will say that we, well, we watched 66 films. I'm oh, sorry, no, 68 films. Uh, 69 films. Oh, well, well, I don't know. We watched a total of 69 films. We nice. talked about 68 of them oh. on the podcast. Fair enough. The one we didn't talk about, I'll just say right now, is Encanto. Because <laughs> we didn't get to watch it till it came out on Disney Plus on yeah. Christmas Day. So we'll save our full thoughts. Like our traditional thoughts for, I guess, the next traditional podcast. But we will talk about it. And Kanto here. Um, yeah, I will say that it will appear somewhere. It will appear somewhere on our list. On our lists. Um, but yeah, so some of these movies, yeah, you're right, uh, came out so recently we have not talked about them pr- in proper conversation on the podcast. But for the most part, there are things we've talked about, established movies. Uh, I'm trying to go back through this list here of 60 plus <laughs> films trying to figure out okay anything that i missed for my list yeah well while you're doing that i guess i might as well do first uh so you can start paring yours down to a nice tight five i don't know i think i have 10 films right now that i have to pare down so five so while you're doing five while you're doing that i'll go ahead and do mine so it just so happens that my top five begins at number five and begins with Encanto. Okay, so we can't talk about Encanto. Well, we can. Yes, we can. What I will say about Encanto, barring my full thoughts about it, it's number five on my list because whereas I think it is an excellently, very well-made movie, it's Disney still on a roll that they've been on since Moana. Just movie after movie, just really like surprising me with the amount of just quality that they're work like that they're working with, and that's quality in songwriting. That's quality in visuals. It's quality in storytelling. Well, asterisk, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, I think Encanto is a great movie with a really cute premise, with really good good characters, well established characters, and a killer soundtrack. I am going to go and say something controversial here. I think it might be Lin Manuel's best. I'm not somebody who loves, loves, loves Hamilton. I like what it does. And in the Heights earlier this year, it was good. But I think some of the songs in Encanto are better. I think he set a new, I think he set a bar for himself. In my opinion, 
Christy's over here shaking her head. But I'm going to say the work he's done in this movie with this, with this, with these songs is really, really good. My asterisk that I was going to return to is there are some story issues with this movie. There are some things that are not exactly clear. There's some subtleties that I think that are too subtle for the good of this movie and make you overthink some major plot points. There was a plot hole that we had thought that we had seen in this movie that we talked about after we saw it. And I had to see it a second time to really let that sink in and like maybe think about it in a different way. So maybe not the best storytelling that they've had in like, especially compared to Moana, which I think is a masterclass in that department. But still, it's a fun movie with a great vibe. It's gentle. The stakes are never that high. And the songs are great. So I had a great time with Encanto. And I think it's a perfect Disney Plus movie. I mean, Encanto's going to appear on my list. So I'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, yeah, I agree with everything. I like it a lot, a lot, a lot. But it's a number five just because of, like I said, some story issues that I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. I'm not sure if it hits the highs of Moana. No. But it's definitely very, very catchy and very good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just ask my niece who was singing the uh, song about Bruno all throughout our Christmas day. Oh, shh. We we don't talk about Bruno. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. So I'm going to move on to number four. Number four is the thank you for forcing me to see this, Mike, um, (laughs) to the top five which is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Um, This thing is one of those unicorns I was talking about when I was talking about movies earlier in the podcast. Um, Things that should not exist and somehow got made because they were clearly passion projects by the people who made them and just are unlike any other movie experience in the year. Um, It's just so funny. This movie is just hilarious. Everything they do is so wild. The swings are huge. There are musical numbers just because they wanted to do musical numbers. It's not even really a musical. There are visual effects in places that you wouldn't imagine visual effects to be. There are there are gags that just like knock you off, like knock you off just like with how little you expect them to happen and the characters are just so cute and lovable that you just want you just want them to succeed so badly even when they're being jerks to each other it's just such a cute funny movie that's just like i said just unlike so many other comedies i just don't understand why like how it got made but i'm happy that it did It's one of those films that doesn't make sense when you try to explain it to people. No, it's impossible. I would bet it's <laughs> impossible to explain. Um, and so now I am not attempted to explain it to anybody. But yeah, it just, it just, yeah, it's just, it's so, such a strange, beautiful thing. And I'm glad it exists. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Mm-hmm. Let me move to number three now. Hey, guess what? Disney is back. And you probably didn't expect this order of which one is showing above the other. But my number three is Raya and the Last Dragon. Yeah. Um, I did not, I was not high on this one when I saw it. I surprisingly was. This is 
a Disney movie that out Mulan's Mulan to me. And what I mean by that is Mulan at the time was Disney's like trying like, okay, like, yes, this is one of our musicals. And it is also based on not exactly a fairy tale, but a folk tale. Uh, But it was also their attempt at making something a little bit more action friendly. And I think this does that idea much better than Mulan did. I'm not somebody who loves Mulan, I should say. I know a lot of people my generation think it's the best thing ever. I'm okay with Mulan. It's fine. I like this better than Mulan. It's not a musical, but I think the world building is better. I think the things, the like the, the, the fantasy world that they created here is really fascinating. And there could be a lot of stories told in it. I think the ending really lands well, where it feels like, yes, the story has been wrapped up, but there's potential for more stories to be told. I think it's a perfect Disney-fied version of the kind of storytelling you see in things like um, Avatar The Last Airbender, these big feeling sagas in these fantasy worlds. Not to mention that, again, they nailed the characters here. Raya, the titular dragon. Uh, Raya is just so good. And then the, the dragon. Raya the dragon. <laughs> no, they're two different characters. Raya is an interesting uh, hero for, for, for the movie. She's, she strikes a really good balance between being strong and just being completely like, like new at everything and just trying to figure these things out as she goes. And then, yes, the performance that Aquafina uh, does as the dragon is just, she's funny throughout she's the the comic relief never seems like it's getting in the movie's way it's just such a charming movie and like beautiful world the animation is great and we just came out of this thing enjoying it way more than we thought we were going to it just surprised us in the way that it was just so watchable um it's unfortunate that this thing underperformed in its theatrical release i hope that it has a second life but I think, yeah, ultimately, I think people, when they think back to Disney's output in 2021, they're going to remember Encanto. I don't think they're going to remember Raya. I think it's going to be one of those lost movies that in 10 years, people are going to be like, hey, Raya's secretly good. And I'll be here being like, yeah, I knew that when it came out. <laughs> you just yeah. have to wait for that generation to come up and uh-huh. take over the internet and right. got memes of- <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I liked it better than Encanto. I think it's got, it tells a better story than Encanto. I like Encanto's music better, but they're different movies and they tried different things. And that's why both of them end up on my list this year. I think I was impressed by both of them. And I'm just, I'm just happy that they're among making some really questionable decisions in every other department of the company. I'm at least happy that Disney Animation has found a real good groove. And I hope they continue it. All right, then we come to my top two, which has been, I've had some trouble with my top two because there was one movie of these two that came out very early in the year. And the moment I saw it, I knew it was going to be one of my favorites. But then a late comer came in and blew me away and has been the only thing probably I've been able to think about for the last week. So these two things are at war, but ultimately I had to do what I had to do. So at number two, I know 
is Mitchell's versus the machines. Whoa. Yeah, I know. The shocker. Ring, ring, ring. Shocker of the week. Shocker. Big shocker for me. I'm shocked. I love this movie. Seeing as I know what your number one is now, but I yeah. am shocked. Yeah. This was your number. You told me this was your number one going into December. When we started talking about lists. You said Mitchell's versus the machine. Yeah. I have not seen anything better this year. I, I, I didn't and, until I didn't until December. What was that? See, recency bias is what I'm trying to get away from, and yet I don't know if I can. No, I don't, let's talk about. I couldn't. All right, so before we get there, for our spoiling here, let's talk about Mitchell versus the Machines. Yes, and and I think that's why I want to push back against your recency bias argument because this is still number two because it is still the second movie, best movie I've seen all year, and I saw it way, way, way back at the beginning of the year. I think that the things that this movie does, it, it's another one of those unicorns, just like Barb and Star, where things that this movie is trying to do are so wild and so out of left field and so inventive that it just, it, it's just an experience you can't have anywhere else. And even Disney can't make a movie like this. Disney is making so much more traditional movies than the big swings that Sony is taking. I mean, this is neither here nor there with this list, but that most recent trailer for the next, the sequel to Spider-Verse is just further examples of the risks that these guys are able to take and that Sony believes in them and will finance these big risks and these big swings is great. It's great for the animation industry as a whole because it raises that bar. And I think, yeah, I think the Mitchells versus the Machines raises that bar visually Number one, I mean, yeah, animation, sure, yes, that there's a story to be told here. And I think the story is really good. I think the the I think it's a very funny script. I think that the characters are likable, especially especially the lead character. But visual, but visual being visual is the thing that animation does best. And this is a perfect example of how inventive these movies get to be and can be. The things you can do in animation that you can't do in live action still they did it with Spider-Verse and they did it here. Just the sketches that come to life that Katie draws throughout the movie that she's seeing kind of in her own vision of the world. And that's not just visual too. That goes hand in hand with the theme of the movie, which is she feels like an outcast. She doesn't feel like anybody else. She sees the world differently. And the fact that you can show that through the visual form of animation is such a such a cool metaphor for how that feels. It's it, and you can't, yeah, you just don't see that anywhere else. Um, but yeah, not not to mention that it's also kind of just a fun like action movie on top of being a really funny comedy. It just goes at such a fast clip. Things are constantly happening, um, and all of that on top of the fact that it's a movie that uses a story about technology and the benefits or, or, you know, like the negatives and positives of having that technology without feeling like it's preaching at you. It's the lesson at the end of the day ends up being about families and not about phones rotting your brain. And I think that in itself as a story about technology in 2021 is enough of like, it makes it already like way better than, your black mirrors of the world that just get so mired in, but what if it's bad? It's like, guys, we already know it's bad. 
we, we had that conversation a decade ago. We know it's bad, but we live with it. And we have to figure out how we exist with it, coexist with these companies. Yes, we know these tech companies are bad. What is the thing that we can talk about beyond that? What do we do with that information? Not just, oh, I'm so depressed because it is what it is. It's like having a more nuanced conversation about these things is I think how these stories need to be told. And this movie is doing that. This movie is saying like, this is a world we're in. How do we exist as a family now? Like what, and how do we feel part of something? How do we feel united with a unit? And yeah, I think this movie does that really well. It's, it, it, and yeah, I mean, I could talk about it forever, but I need to save it. Um, I think it's really, really good. And I feel like it's just going to be one of those things that people forget about, just sort of like Raya as well, where it's like it came out so early in the year that I'm just hoping that when we're looking at Oscar nominations for Best Animated Film, that does not get overlooked. So this is your third animation film on your list. Yeah, big year for animation. I mean, there's always is on my list. You should know this about me. Oh, I know. But, (laughs) But it's not number one. Number one is not an animated film. Is it? I mean, not really. <laughs> not really, no. Okay. It's CGI heavy, though. Yeah, so you talked about this movie uh, last time we did our regular podcast, and I had not seen it yet. I asked and, you a and lot I, of You answered me a lot of questions. I tried to give you a spoiler-free review on it. You did a pretty good job of keeping me away from the bigger, big spoilers because I went into this thing more or less free of expectations i had not watched a single one of the trailers i had recently watched the previous movies in the series so i was prepared for it at least i thought i was prepared for it but i was not prepared for what the actual movie was so yeah my number one is of course the matrix resurrections this thing will not escape my brain It's like all I've been able to think about. I've been reading so many takes online about this thing. I just, I'm trying to understand why this is so divisive. It seems like you can't just think this movie is okay. You either love it or you hate it. It's, and I I get why now people were making Last Jedi comparisons, but where for me, the Last Jedi comparisons fall short is that the Last Jedi was still a Star Wars movie. It was still doing a lot of like doing a lot of the same beats of a Star Wars movie. It was clearly inspired by The Empire Strikes Back, and it was trying to be that for the new, for a new generation, for the new trilogy. The Matrix isn't trying to be the Matrix. The Resurrections is not trying to be the Matrix. It's not even trying to be the sequels. It's definitely not trying to be the sequels. It's doing something else. So the Last Jedi comparison only works for the fan reaction. In every other way, it doesn't. This is a movie that's taking the very idea of being a movie in a franchise and being like, yeah, but do we want that? Who wants that? What are the kind of people who want that in 2021? Let's talk about what it means to be a sequel in a franchise. And then after we're done talking about that, Let's actually make the rest of the movie be a metaphor for that exact thing. It's like, yeah, let's give you maybe what you wanted for a little bit, but then let's pull that back and give you a different kind of movie. 
then then that the movie that we actually wanted to make, the story that we actually wanted to tell, and then by the end of it, feel like a epilogue to the entire Matrix series. I don't know how it manages to do all of those things as well as it does, and not feel like a mess. <laughs> oh, it's on my list. So I'm saving what I'm going to talk about it, but yeah, it's just... it's weird. It's it's good. It's, it's an epilogue. But also, yeah. there's no confirmed sequels, so this no. could be the end cap for it. And I absolutely think it should be. That's my that's my opinion. I think at the end of this movie, I don't want to know more. It. And a lot of people said that about the first Matrix too. Is that when Matrix Reloaded came out, everybody was like, "Yeah, this is fine. This is fine. It's a good action movie." But did we need this? The end of the Matrix, the film, the Matrix feels pretty wrapped up. Mm-hmm. You end that with your main character becoming Superman. So you can pretty much tie all the loose ends yourself at that point. You can be like, okay, he's Superman now. So he just did everything. Like he solved it. He went back, kicked the machine's butt, and there's peace. You can just assume all of that because of the ending that they wrote. But then Reloaded and Revolutions just be like, actually, it's more co- it's more complicated than It's that. that with extra steps. Yeah, there's extra steps that we need to get to to get to the, that. Superman's not as hard, like strong as we thought he was. There's situations in which Superman can't do Superman things. Like they started muddying the waters a little bit. And so that's why those movies are what they are. They're good for what they do. But I understand when people talk about them as complicated and talk about them as as potentially unnecessary and i think that by the end of resurrections it somehow manages to make those movies matter while also feeling like they feeling like the story is again wrapped up and doesn't need to go on it's it's also a movie that's made me think a lot about and the fan reaction to this movie has made me think a lot about expectations we have for movies as a whole what we deem the very criteria that we use to decide whether a movie is good or not. One of the biggest criticisms this movie is getting is, oh, well, the action was the thing about the first three Matrix movies. It doesn't hit as hard here. The action is fine, but it doesn't look as good. It doesn't feel as good. So the question then becomes, is this a better or worse movie because of the way the action appears is that the point that it's trying to make or is the action being notched down purposefully to tell a story about characters who have lost their touch so is this a purposeful move and does that change whether or not that means that the game or the movie is good i almost did the thing that the movie does complete the matrix as movies and games anyways um but and so thinking about that maybe things like finally come to this weird conclusion which is why does that matter and again i realize that a lot of this is getting into a heady weird space and a lot of this is also because we went to fucking film school and we took theory classes yes (laughs) But it does kind of bring that whole like thing into like, it's a modern example of how you do often have to re like think about critical theory as separate from recommendations, right? Video game reviews also kind of gone through this conversation this year, which is 
is a review supposed to be a buyer's guide? Like you should see this movie because you like movies like this and it's a good use of your time and money. Or is it, what is this saying about the actual art of making a movie? What is it saying about a movie? What is the critical read? And yeah, I think it's a good, like, it's a good bellwether. Your reaction to this movie, I think, says a lot about what you value in a movie, like in a movie and what you want a movie experience to be. It's weird you say that, especially with video games, because with the Video Games Awards, our game of the year is It Takes Two, which <laughs> is a far cry from what most people expected was either Metroid Dread mm-hmm. or uh, the, what was it, that Samurai game? Yeah. And so I guess what the long, long thing, the, the short version of the long thing I'm trying to say is, this this it, it, it's in the, your brain yeah the movie itself is telling is basically trying to make a case the difference between expectations and reality the, it is a binary that along with a bunch of other binaries that the matrix as a film series is trying to destroy which is funny because <laughs> one binary is kind of a plot point in the film exactly but also that's kind of what the theme they are trying to hammer in throughout the film is that there is no such thing as binary, even though you kind of want it to be. Yeah. It doesn't need to be. It's about nuance. It's about middle ground. It's about mm-hmm. not necessarily doing one thing or the other. It's about like, and, and I think that, yeah, it's like, it's saying this is a movie that is neither. It's not really a sequel to the matrix films because of all the strange things it does like it's a romantic movie it's it's like a it's ha- the first half of it feels like a comedy like like it's it's so it's both it's both a matrix movie and not a matrix movie because the matrix movies matter in this universe but at the same time they don't so it's exists it's a thing that exists between things in every single way and yeah it's just it's fascinating and also, it's a really fun movie to watch. <laughs> so, so that's why I think it had to be number one on this list because it's just it. It's a it's a movie that makes you think about movies. <laughs> All right, so Matt <laughs> yeah. with The Matrix Resurrections as yeah. your number one film. Somehow. 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 All right. But you saw five movies. Oh, I saw, oh, way I saw, more, five I saw way more than five movies. And I had trouble trying to pare it down to just five movies. But somehow you did. Somehow I did. And somehow, for the first time, a Boat podcast first, there was no Marvel film. <laughs> <laughs> also, a Boat podcast first. Just want to point out, this is the first year... I mean, you do it because I force you to typically, but yes. this is the first year where you're not even talking about having two lists, an original movie list and a franchise list. Oh, I could, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is just one list because uh, otherwise I'd be talking for the next 40 minutes and we hit two hours on this thing. <laughs> yeah, you know what? We don't want that. No. So I'll start um, with the only comic book film on my list. A film that, yes, actually did come out this year. And <laughs> I'm making it as, as special exception because it is very different from the film original film that we did get. 
even though you can consider it a re-release, <laughs> I'm still putting it on my film for this year because it came out this year. And yes, I know it was super long, <laughs> but the fact that it came out in a black and white version, and I still even watched that and enjoyed the hell out of that. <laughs> and that's actually the film I think works better than the original film. Is I'm talking about Snack Ziders. That's what I have written down here. Snack Ziders Justice League cut. Uh, the two the the twenty million dollar extra log bonus features. <laughs> the not so snack size snack zider cut. Yes, Justice League, bigger, longer, and uncut. <laughs> four hours, four hours, yeah, almost f- yeah, four and a half hours of. Zack Snyder making the film that he wanted to make in the first place without the restrictions of it being a theatrical release. Yeah. I loved this film. I loved the story that it was telling. It was, it it corrected all of the mistakes and all of the gripes I had about the Joss Whedon Justice League cut. It made everything make make sense. It made everyone have a purpose. It made everyone have an arc. But the reason it's number five is because it's so goddamn long. (laughs) But it needs to be that long to tell this really long and complex stories about everybody. Yeah. I do feel like this film needed to be broken up into one and two parts. However... It just flows so well together that you don't want to break it up. You don't want it. You're in this ride and it just flows. It runs. It meshes so well. And the black and white chrome version, as they're calling it, just overemphasizes how beautifully shot this thing actually is. It pairs well with the dark and the light things within the film the dark and the light within each character, the power struggle. It's a beautiful shot film. And that's the thing that's going to resurrect. Well, haha, pun intended, resurrect. But later I'll get back to beautifully shot films. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, surprisingly, this is the one and only comic book film on my list this year, Justice League. Yeah, the, the Zack Snyder cut. I'm honestly surprised that this beat out Spider-Man here. Uh, so is this the part where I talk about honorable mention Spider-Man? Yeah, I think this is the time where you should talk about Spider-Man because I'm shocked that this is not your number five. So I love Spider-Man Far From Home. Or sorry, No Way Home. There you go. I did it again. I think that's probably <laughs> why I... So no, Actually, no, I said that right then. I loved Spider-Man um, Far From Home. Sure. So, expectations for No Way Home were sky high. And then, somewhere along the lines, because uh, not spoiling it, well, how much should I spoil it at this point then? I mean, this is our, our wrap-up podcast is a spoiler zone. Okay. So, with Spider-Man No Way Home, the reason I can't put it on my list 
is because it breaks down the fundamental rule that I have of previous required viewing outside of the franchise. Yeah. You need to watch and watch the first three Spider-Man films, the Sam Raimi films, to have an appreciation for when not only do the villains show up, but also when Tobey Maguire shows up. It hits harder. Yeah. You need to watch the amazing Spider-Man films from uh, Mark Webb, I think. No, no, he yeah. did the home. No, didn't. Yeah, from yeah. Mark Webb. Yes, yes, that was his. Yes. In order to have a more uh, strong appreciation for when the villains and for when the villains and Andrew Garfield show up in this film, I will put a caveat. Had we not gotten last year's um, Spider-Man, animated Spider-Man, uh, across the Spider-Verse. That was not last year. Was that not last year? Okay, 2019. Uh, I actually think it was before that. Was that 2018? I think that was 2018. Wow, so it's been that long. <laughs> it's been a little bit. It's been a little bit. Had we not gotten that film, I think this film may have hit harder. Yeah. Because you're seeing multi-generational and multi-Spider-Man in the same film. It is hitting a little bit of the same beats. But because we got that film and we're hitting the kind of the same beats for it, it feels like I've seen this film before. Or at least what they're trying to do. Right. It's as if that film was a test run. And the Sony looked at it and said, hey, people loved it because there were multiple Spider-Man in it. Let's just do that, but live action. Uh, sure enough, it made a billion dollars. That's a good point. But the other thing that happened in this movie's gestation period, which was probably extended thanks to COVID, mm-hmm. is the big corporate push for metaverse. Uh, or cross multiverse exactly yeah metaverse multiverse same thing really um right which if you don't watch the disney plus shows especially loki you don't really understand get with this it's a lot of extra viewing to understand the nuances of this film whereas spider-man far from home you don't need any of that. You just need to know that it's Spider-Man on vacation and it's a self-contained movie. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you're right. I think that does potentially work to its detriment because if you can't say this movie stands alone, it's and it's tough to have this conversation after I just gushed about the Matrix. Right. Where the it, Matrix you, Revolutions, though, is yes, you're right. That it does Resurrections. Resurrections. They're both movies that do kind of lean very heavily on base knowledge about the franchises that they're from, but they their their actually execution is completely different. Yes, the execution of the Matrix is we're doing is it's doing this to prove a point. The execution of Spider Man is is doing it to show that it can <laughs> show that we can do this. That this is still yeah. something that we can do. And look at how many they, properties we own. Yeah, because they're trying. We, to we own your nostalgia. 
Yeah, they're trying to say, we know how much you care about Spider-Man. Here's a movie that shows that basically rewards you for caring. Whereas The Matrix Resurrection is saying, we actually don't know what baggage you have with The Matrix. We don't know whether you're like excited or approaching this film with trepidation. We're going to give you a movie that interrogates that. Uh, Another thing for, or rather against uh, No Way Home, they constantly beat up on Doctor Strange. (laughs) Which is weird for a studio that is going to try to sell you a movie starring Doctor Strange next year. Yes. Um, (laughs) There's a big fight scene in the middle of it, Doctor Strange versus Spider-Man. Spoiler alert, Spider-Man wins. (laughs) <laughs> when it really shouldn't <laughs> sure if if you're making out um dr strange to be sorcerer supreme all-powerful <laughs> and kid from queens with web shooters beats him <laughs> how powerful is he also they shit on his magic a lot because in dr strange he in the, the film he had to go through a, like years of training or what felt like years of training to become mastery of the sorcery. And yet they shit on it in this film by having someone with no magical training able to use magical powers <laughs> to basically shortcut their way around because portals. Yeah. Portals are very helpful. <laughs> um, and then after all that at the very end of this, uh, like super spoiler here, like by this time you're not going to want to watch the film. Hopefully you've seen it by now and you're just hearing me rant about it. <laughs> At the very end of Spider-Man No Way, uh, Spider-Man, yeah, No Way Home, he's practically not even MCU Spider-Man anymore. He forgoes all technology to become your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh-huh. Which does in a way feel is, like and does that feel like that's payoff for the trilogy? Or does it feel like kind of like arbitrary? That's where I fight with this film in my head. <laughs> yeah. Of is this film paying off the past three years where it kind of where it's setting up Spider-Man to take over for the Avengers? But at this point, Avengers don't exist anymore. They're disbanded yeah. broken up right they, they've all gone their separate ways so is there a need for a leader of the avengers if there is no avengers and spider-man doesn't want to be that lead because he's back to neighborhood spider-man no technology no tony stark spider suit no nanotech it's costume he designed So it's revert back to the character itself at its core. But then you just spend two years setting this up just to reject it. Yeah. Like I said, I have a lot of problems with Spider-Man No Way Home. If you want my full thoughts on it, <laughs> uh, um, go to Patreon. Yeah. Uh, right. Or drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com and I will give you my full thoughts on Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, it's just a, it's just one giant three-hour podcast where we just talk about Spider-Man and the Matrix Resurrection. 
Let's do it. Compare contrast, big Venn diagram. Well, here, I will compare contrast with you, for you right now because Matrix Resurrections is my number four film. Too low. Boo, too low. <laughs> too low. <laughs> to be fair, number four and number three could probably be swapped and interchangeable. Okay, fair because enough. Whatever. They're, they're... Too, still too low. Anyway. Anyways, everything you said about Matrix Resurrections, I fully agree with. It mm-hmm. definitely feels like an end cap and an epilogue, but also they do leave the door open of what else can be done? What else can be fulfilled within the Matrix? And it does... I'm going through this for my third time. Thank you, HBO Max, for yeah. keeping this on your film. Uh, catalog, at least until like mid-January. But yeah, I'll probably go through this film about another twice, two times, because every time I watch it, I find something new. I, I make more dots. I connect more dots, not just within the film itself, but within the Matrix filmology itself as well. It's a fascinating film as a fan of the Matrix to revisit not just the world after 20 years, but to try and tell a new story. Also, um, because you saw it, it took me about three different viewings, but the garbage guy during the fight in, in the third, beginning of the act three. Mm. Do you know who that's supposed to be? It's supposed to be fucking guy from reloaded. Yes. The, the Mary Vinci guy. Yeah. No, I realized it right as soon as I started talking with the French accent. I was like, oh, I didn't get to my, my, my second or third view. I was like, this oh. guy's like, I know he's important. Well, we had, I guess yeah, you just is, watched it, just watched those movies. So I think you're right. If it wasn't fresh in our minds, maybe it wouldn't have hit in the same way. That's fair. Yeah. Well, it took me, like I said, two trials. I was like, wait, that's why, like, I've seen him before because the like, he's all covered in like tattered and bearded, and it's like, oh, he's like, I don't really know who you are. Sorry, doesn't hit <laughs> as hard. Yeah, but then like the rewatching is like, oh yeah, 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 that that hits hard now. He's basically just there to just make meta commentary while the fight scene is happening. Yeah, that's also why it kind of like drew me off. Like, why are they making him so important if he's not even fighting? Yeah, it's a distracting scene mm-hmm. that I'm not really sure what they were trying to do with it, but <laughs> but it, if, you, if you like break it down, it's like it's like I guess he didn't really fight for himself in the Reloaded either. No, he made his like his is like his ghost goons cronies do the do fighting it then too. So I guess it makes sense why he doesn't fight again here. All right, uh, it's. There's stuff like that where I pick it up on the second time uh-huh. and third time watching it. But the fact that wh- one of my rules is if you're going to make me watch it a second or a third time, you're going to make me invest more time in it, you got to be a good film. And that's what The Matrix Resurrections does. It's so good. It makes me want to be back into this film. It makes me want to be back into this universe. Yeah. It makes me want to go back and watch the other films as well. Yeah. It's a successful commentary on the franchise. It, yeah, it succeeds where I think Spider-Man fails. Mm-hmm. Is it's not necessarily giving you another thing of the thing that you like. It's giving you a thing that makes you think about the thing that you like. Which could be good, could be bad. Turns out a lot of people have complicated relationships with the Matrix. And it's being shown in people's reactions of this movie. Right, but 
we fall on the good side of it, or at least on the <laughs> we like it side of it. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, even, even if I didn't, I think that what this movie is saying, what this movie has to say, is interesting in its own. That separated from the Matrix, I would be really curious to show this to somebody who's never seen a Matrix movie, any of them, or like just someone who just knows of the Matrix through pop culture references, right? Because I still think that there are things in here that would work the same mm-hmm. exact way. It's almost like that first thirty minutes of this movie is in there because they have to make, like, they just have to assume that some people will not have the knowledge base. And so it does sort of give you an idea of what the Matrix is or isn't. Yeah, that's what makes it a good film is that you you do need that that knowledge, but it works without it as well. Yeah. And that's why it's here in Spider-Man isn't. Uh, Third film or fourth film. I don't know. Like I said, this this could be interchangeable. And that is Encanto for exactly everything you said. Yeah. So I have, I have a question. Answer. So what I was referring to earlier, the thing that we were confused about, and I want to see if you maybe tripped on this as well. We were loving this thing up until the climax. So the setup is she is noticing that there are cracks forming in the house. The house is starting to destroy itself. And it's unclear the reasons why. It seems, though, that it seems to happen when there is discord in the family, specifically when she is disagreeing with her abuela. The flip side of this is it seems to thrive. The magic seems to strengthen when there are moments of unity, specifically when she has the musical number with her sister and they're having discoveries about her sister's powers and they're having fun together. And her sister realizes that she has more freedom with her powers than she thought she did. That's when the music, the the magic thrives. So we have this, this setup going into the climax where ultimately everything cracks and the whole house is destroyed. They try to, clean up everything in one scene which is having Maribel meet the abuela at the river where the gift was given to her she says in the flashback then you have the flashback sequence basically fleshing out what we saw at the beginning of the movie basically saying about the romance between the two of them and that led to the what looks like a like a siege on the city that they lived in in Colombia, and then basically the magic creating a safe place for them so and where is, is like, the trip up yeah the, the trip up is there's a line there's like a couple of lines that we're supposed to take as a change of heart for the abuela like up until this point it seems like she was still angry about, uh, at Mir- Mir- Mirabelle for basically testing fate in the way that she did. But then the couple of lines after this flashback is she's just like all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'm, I guess I was just hard on you guys because I didn't want to lose my home again. And then all of a sudden she has a complete 180. She's like, yeah, Mirabelle, you were right. So 
we got confused. We felt like there was something potentially missing that raised the stakes high enough for that to matter. We were like, we never really saw the abuela be really harsh on anybody except for Mirabelle in that scene where she they were basically yelling at each other. The stakes really seem to do early in the movie seems to do with the proposal and wedding, but it seems like that's not even something that sister wants to do. The sister has that line where she doesn't even want to marry marry him because it's just something that she believes she has to do for the family where is the scene with the abuela saying to her like a reason why that marriage has to go through where is the scene where the abuela is like like wielding her power it just seemed like we had missed something uh my take about it was that everyone was trying to appease the abuela that they were crumbling under the pressure and thus the house was crumbling because of it. Yeah. But I guess what we were, what what, were we, we realized that, but, but I guess where we were confused is it just seemed like she changed her mind. There didn't seem like to be a thing that changed her mind. There there was no um, final speech, right? It's just, it felt like she went to the river and all of a sudden changed her mind because she thought about it more which is not from because a story- she felt sorry yeah for- from a storytelling perspective it's not strong enough no no you're right i had to like watch that scene like a couple times yeah i had to watch it a second time to finally just be like oh that's it that's that's really just it she changed her mind because she thought about it more <laughs> no no you're right i had point of view that's just the because- same kind of thing yeah but the the music and the visuals kind of trump You're right. everything about that, You're which right. is why it's higher. Yeah, because I, I like in my head, like I have a couple songs going through my head because of it, and that's just living well, writing good shit. But it goes back to the thing you said about about the matrix where you're like it has to be the movie has to make it worthwhile for you to want to watch it again to get your questions answered. Mm-hmm. And this question is just, just such a light thing. Like it, ultimately where I landed on it after the second thing was like, I guess I over was overthinking it. And it really just is as simple as this is a meta, the house is a metaphor for basically discord or unity in the house. Well, see, like I tried to like solve the mystery as it was going. Yeah. And it wasn't until like I watched it the second time. I was like, okay, no, like, okay, I know there's no mystery. Let's just enjoy it now. And I enjoyed yeah. it better. Yeah, and the other, I guess the other part of it is it almost it almost feels like the way that I read it the first time, getting confused there, not feeling the stakes were high enough, it feels like Bruno's vision is a red herring because it doesn't feel no, all, like... All his visions are red herrings. Right, yeah, it doesn't feel like his sister, like just hugging the sister, like the whole scene with the sister. Yeah, sure, it gets the ball rolling with Mirabelle trying to figure it out, but it's uh, not the see, be-all, uh, see, I took it solution. as his visions are what could happen, not what will happen. They're not self-fulfilling prophecies unless yeah. you make them self-fulfilling yeah, prophecies. I think I realized that the second time around. But yeah. what I'm saying is, is that if you're go- going into it like we did and trying to get like a very like solid story, like a solid structure, it doesn't really have that. And these pieces are a little malleable. They feel a little loose. And but I, I feel like I have the same issue that you're having now yeah. that I had with Raya. Oh, 
okay. where the, the issue of it being loose and trying to come together, the cracks are still there. I can see them, but does it fit into a nice sphere? Hmm. Yeah, I didn't have a problem. I only saw Raya the one time, and okay. I didn't have any problem following the story. Well, the problem wasn't following the story. The story is very linear. It's yeah. making it make sense in a world building. And and maybe that's just the difference in scope. Raya's scope is enormous. Yes. Raya is something that probably in another another world they would have made into a television show because there's so much that you can say about that world and they do have to wrap it up in a way that feels wrapped up in two hours i like how they wrapped it up though and kanto is trying to do something very different it's trying to tell Mm -hmm. a story about a family and these characters and it's not a giant fantasy world Mm -hmm. so yeah I ultimately thought that Raya was more successful at doing the thing kind of storytelling it was doing than Encanto was. I think Encanto, I think in an era, it was trying to tell a very, very simple story in an era where we've been like, even by Disney themselves, encouraged to think bigger. And so I was thinking too big and it ends up being way more intimate story than I thought it was. I don't know. You could probably also listen back to our reactions to Luca, uh, Pixar's movie this year. That's nowhere near our top fives this year. (laughs) No, but we will talk about Encanto more on our next podcast. Yes. All right. But we have to move on. We have to move on. on. All right. Number two on my list is a film I told everyone to go see. (laughs) And when I talked to said, I haven't watched any good movies recently. Like, oh, you got Hulu. I got a film you can watch. Yeah, and even got you to watch it and appear on your top five. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Yep. Uh, how I even came across this thing was by accident. <laughs> uh, there was a single ad that starred Christian uh, Wig and it said the creator of Bridesmaids, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." And then I saw an article pop up that said it was a great comedy. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll check it out. Eventually, it's in theaters. I don't know when I'm going to see it. Then I'm browsing through Hulu, and I see it in my recommended feed because I watched Palm Springs. And I was like, oh, that's that movie I wanted to watch. (laughs) Okay, I guess I'll put it on. Going into completely blind, knowing Mm. that it's just a comedy, Kristen Wiig, I had no idea what I was in for. And yet, it's comedic gold. Don't tell me there's no good comedies in the last 10 years. I'm pointing to this one. I'm pointing to Palm Springs. They fall in the same vein of going to it blind, forget what, yeah, pop star. (laughs) Go into it blind. You don't need to know what you're getting into, but you're going to laugh. You're going to have a good time. It's fun. It's inventive. There's a musical number. There's two different musical numbers that just randomly pop up because it fit the theme. It fit the tone. And it weirdly all works. And then there's Trish. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. There is. And then there's Trish. That's all we have to say. That's it. You just have to say, oh, there's Trish. And if you see them, you're like, yep. 
And then there's Trish. <laughs> <laughs> Just as that cherry on top. Yep. Of all of the entire movie. You gotten through the entire movie and then that's how it ends. And you're just like, this movie is great. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that is what kind of sealed it for me, this being a great film, <laughs> is the amount of irreverent jokes that make a whole lot of sense for these characters. And it just culminates to a great ending. Yeah. And the fact that I'm recommending it to everybody shows what a good film it is. I don't recommend things a lot because everyone has their own tastes. But Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar, is that comedy I will recommend to everybody. Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But yet there's one film that tops all films. (laughs) Just in general or this year? Uh, Just this year. It's also a film I want to be more of. I, am, I want to live in this world. Honestly, I am shocked that this is your number one. I am not because of the director. I guess, yeah, but like, I don't know. I saw this movie too, and well, it's not even on my top five. It's an honorable mention for me. Honorable mention. Yeah. Uh, my number one film is Dune. Yeah. By Denis Villeneuve. I guess it is. <laughs> guess it is. I did not expect this to be um, my number one film. I'm still wrestling with my number one film. I don't know. It may change tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. This is just how it ended up right <laughs> just now. Just how it ended up right now. Yeah. Uh, but the way Dune was shot, the way it was acted, it, the way light plays in everything. Um, and yeah, you didn't even watch this in HDR like I did. No. I watched this at home. You would have I wanted to watch this in IMAX. If you think the lighting was cool. And on your plasma, let me tell you, you would have your your socks would have been knocked out all the way into the next galaxy if you had seen this in HDR. Uh, the director Denise is a masterclass in his craft. It's a beautifully shot film. It's a well paced story. By the end of it, I wanted more, and you know what? I'm going to get more because it just said part one at the end. I was not expecting this. I was going into it expecting, you know, Dune 1984 remake. And they're going to get everything into it. And yet I was so enthralled with it that after two and a half hours, I still wanted more of this film. I'm going to get more. Dune 2 is confirmed. Maybe more Dune Part 3. But there's so much packed into this film with character interactions, with character introductions that I never feel lost. I never know. I never feel like it's too overwhelming. And everything that they introduce from the Whisper to the Spice to the Warring Clans is all explained both visually, mm-hmm. which is a well show not tell technique. Yeah. But also amongst these characters, it's never like I need to sit down and explain exposition to you. It right. all feels like natural dialogue. And that comes from a great script and a great director. Yeah. Shot beautifully. 
This is, I think, is the key of why I think that this movie is much better than I think I expected it to be, mm-hmm. is that exact reason, is because there are so many movies that are just like this, trying to tell big fantasy stories in big sci-fi worlds where there's a lot of proper nouns and a lot of things to remember, and it's so easy to get lost in them. Hell, Matrix sequels are definitely at fault for this. Uh, Reloaded and Revolutions have this problem, which is they try to introduce way too much, way too fast, and you feel lost, and you feel yourself drowning in the world's lore. And Dune somehow manages to feel like you can keep track of it all. And I don't know how. I don't know how it did it, but by the end of that movie, I was invested. And I was like, yeah, no, I followed all this. I thought, I know what the three factions are. I know what they're looking for. I know who the big chess pieces on the chessboard are. And I know what they want. It's incredible that someone like me, who doesn't even like these kinds of movies typically, was able to keep track of it all. And I didn't feel lost once. And that's why it's my number one film. It's the number one film. It's self-contained. You can end the story here. And it feels contained. Mm, I'm maybe going to push back a little bit maybe. on that. Yeah, because they do set up a lot. You end at the end, and I definitely felt like the story was not even close. In fact, it all has a feeling at the end of that is just starting. Mm-hmm. Because your main character has already changed, basically, his fate. He's already been like, all right, well, this was what I came up with. This is what the world is telling me I have to be. But by the end of the movie, he's seen an alternate path. He's seen this other thing that he can do that he actually believes himself is a worthwhile thing for him to pursue. And he's going to go for it. So I want more. Yeah. I just want more. It's both ending and a beginning Mm -hmm. and it's a cool feeling, but in no way do I feel like it was a complete story. Uh, So yeah, I just wanted to push back against that notion a little bit, but yeah. Okay. Um, And oh, but my biggest disappointment, um, Zendaya. Not enough Zendaya. Not enough Zendaya. Not enough Zendaya. We need more Michi in our lives. And you know, Zendaya is Michi. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's uh, Justice League, Snack Snyder Cut, Matrix Resurrections, Encanto, Barb and Star, Go to Vistomar, and number one, Dune. Oh, geez. I feel like... We got to pick a film. I know. I feel like this is the first year where there's no easy answer here. Well, we have three crossovers. Yeah. And I think we can eliminate Encanto because I, the two are better. Yeah. Yeah. My problem was, I told my, said my problems with Encanto. I am shocked that the Mitchells versus the Machines is not even on your list because that should be a shoe in here. Yeah. I liked the animation in it. I liked the story. I liked it a lot. <laughs> but that's all. I just liked it. I never fell in love with it. Uh, uh, I just feel like it's doing a disservice it not being on this in this conversation but if we're choosing between Matrix and Barf and Star <laughs> this is an impossible this is an impossible thing to do they're both they're very so, different they are so different and there are two very different approaches on what a movie should be mm-hmm. and like, they're also one original story and one a franchise film talking about franchise films. Yeah, it's it's tough for me to choose between them because, again, it's choosing between the kind of thing that you want. Mm-hmm. Is do you want a movie? Do you want the funniest comedy of the year? Or do you want something that is trying to be more than just a movie? 
those are two very different things that I want different times. I mean, media boat tradition feels like it leans towards Barb and Starry. Because it's an original film? Yeah. And we love to reward originality. Yes. But, but The Matrix Resurrections but the Matrix, feels like an original concept and, and a rebranding. I hate to say it because it sounds super pretentious, but I hate to say, like, I feel like it's important in a way that Barb and Star isn't, where I feel like it's saying something that's super relevant to right now, this moment we're having in the franchise dominated Hollywood. And right. To and me, it's more of the movie of 2021. This is also why I put the caveat at the beginning of this episode recency bias but it's not just recency bias because it could have come out in january and i still probably would have put it at this top of this list because the thing that it is saying is incredibly relevant and if this is the year so i guess the the question is that we need to solve here is this the best movie of 2021 like of the moment that we're in in 2021 kind of like the conversation we have with our stories mm-hmm. like does it feel like it encapsulates the year or is it the best movie of 2021 like we are rating these things against each other as films and it doesn't matter what year it came out the context doesn't matter i I'm always going to be somebody who errs toward the first thing because I always think that context matters with art and you always have to consider it with critically when you are critically considering art, you have to consider the context in which the art exists. Well, I think you're right in that because as with television, my number one was Bo Burnham inside right? right. because it, it captured really based on context. Yeah. So I think when we lean that way, mm-hmm. Barman Star could have come out any year, whereas right. Matrix Resurrections right. is of the year, is of its time. So that does that make being, it our year? Yeah, our being, film? Yeah, that being said though, like if you just didn't enjoy it as much as Barman Star, that's also a strong argument in favor of it. Right, but is it also the film that we recommend the most <laughs> as Media Boat Podcast? See, that's that, if it's recommendations, that's Barbara Star. Barbara Star. <laughs> because Matrix is a hard sell. It's already been proven at this point that people, that some people that I trust their opinions very much and think they have really good taste most of the time do not like this movie. And for valid reasons. Right, but I'm sure they're the opposite that I am with Spider-Man No Way Home, where they think it's the best thing ever. Maybe. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, yeah, but it's got all these other problems with it. Can we just give it to both of them? I mean, we did that in 2019. (laughs) Did we? Yeah, where we gave it to Endgame and uh, what was the other one? 
<laughs> wow. Don't even remember. No, exactly. Because uh, it was just Endgame. <laughs> it was just Endgame. Um, what else came out that year? <laughs> uh, where'd my other stuff go? <laughs> where'd all the other stuff go? Lost. There's 2020. I know there's 2020. It wasn't 2020. I know that. Search 2019. Yeah, I don't see it. That's weird. Maybe Palm I'm not sure. Last year. Yeah, I know Paul Six was last year. That's so why I'm going to 2019 <laughs> here. God. Who can say? Anyway. Uh, as much as I'd like to do a two-way split, I think you have a good argument for a barb and star. And I'd be willing to concede the Matrix. Because what we're doing here I guess at the end of the day. Oh yeah, it was Knives Out. Knives Out. <laughs> that was 2019. Oh, 2019. That's right. And yeah, that's the real better movie. Yes. <laughs> it is a similar conversation. Oh, right? It's been two years since Knives Out. I mean, next year we get Knives Out too. Yes. Yeah. No. We that's both, a, okay, we, we just call it right out for next year. Right. <laughs> no, that's a good point, though. It's, I'm glad that you brought that up because yeah, it's a similar kind of argument with these two movies, right? Very reward originality. Yeah, uh, Knives Out, just like Barb and Star, is an example of a genre film done in a creative, new, inventive way. Whereas the other is a franchise film that feels like it's tying a bow on something. That feels final, like feels like finality. It feels epic, and is is a commentary on itself. All right, so we're doing a callback to 2019 and just crowning them both. I mean, I probably said the same thing then that I'm going to say now, which is I really don't think we should. <laughs> <laughs> because I like having one easy answer, which is why I was going to give you Barb and Star here. Because I'm like, as much as I love The Matrix, I am the first one to admit it is divisive for a reason. And Right, is- and I'll be the first one to say people haven't seen Barb and Star. Yeah. But, but we have. But they should, and that's they why should. I think- I think you're right. I think this is probably Barman Star because because as much as I love The Matrix, it is such an uphill sell. And and I think that people are going to not get it. And, and I don't want that to sound mean. Not because of anything they're missing. I think it's just going to hit differently depending on the person you are. And I am just somebody who is, this movie is made for. And there are going to be people who this movie is not made for them at all and they are going to be way happier in spider-man so i think we can i think we can say barb and star okay barb and star is rated higher on my list so <laughs> yes it is i think so, it's <laughs> almost by default even though it's my number one it is your number way, one way way is it differently but yeah no you're, you're right about barb and star i think i would recommend barb and star to anybody who likes comedies which is not something i can say with the matrix so, Media Bow Podcast, yeah. number one film, Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar. I mean, honestly, if you watch that, a good triple feature, watch that, Palm Springs and Popstar, you have a good night on your hands. So, if you watch the last three films that we've <laughs> uh, 
put as our number one. No, which would be Knives think, Out. No, because I don't think Palm Pop Springs. Beat, uh, no, because Pop uh, Popstar did not beat uh, Spider Verse, so no. I think Spider Verse is our 2018. Well, you're missing last year's, which was Palm Springs. Oh, you're right. <laughs> That's why I said three years. We're 2019, Matt. <laughs> but you meant the past three years, which would be 2020, 2019, 2018. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. Um, so, yeah, that's our number one film. It sure is. And I think it's a good thing that we can compromise on that and a good thing we can end it because damn we went long <laughs> yeah we went long there's a lot to talk about with these movies turns out we have thoughts about these movies uh that we had not been able to express damn film uh, school degree <laughs> yeah and also I, know, I, I did take a, a really long tangent into spider-man no way home yeah yeah and i did a lot of talking about the matrix so we're good yep anyway thank you people at home for watching uh and listening i should say listening there's no watching portion of this one to our wrap-up shows and Throughout the rest of the week, we'll be filling your podcast feed with the rest of our thoughts, including one remaining last wrap-up show that wraps up everything we didn't talk about during the year that was. So stay tuned for that. It'll be the final gift that we give you for 2021. And we'll be back on the very first of the month with a brand new season of the regular show the very first of the year yes for a new season 2022 so enjoy your new year everybody if you want to find our videos it's on youtube search youtube.com for media boat podcast you'll find our channel for pod audio podcasts we're on all the podcast services you can think of apple Podcasts, google play amazon iHeartRadio, spotify wherever you find your podcasts you can find us on social media. On Twitter, we're at MediaBoatCast. Facebook, search Media Boat Podcast, find our page. And email us if you have questions, comments, anything you want to say to us at MediaBoatPodcast at gmail.com. With that, we say adieu to the movies of 2021. And we'll see. Uh, we did not do um, special nominations or just missed the cut. Oh, we don't have time. Oh, we do we not have time. A lot of those movies. I guess let's do, how about this? Let's do a couple really quick shout outs. Two, two movies each. Shout outs for runners up. Oh, only two for runners up? Only oh, two man. Runners up. I want right. to shout out, I want to shout out Tick, Tick, Boom mm-hmm. musical on Netflix. I really enjoyed. And I want to shout out um, <laughs> Evangelion. 3.01 which has a lot in common with matrix resurrection (laughs) which i do not have time to get into why but trust me on that just trust me on that so what are your two all right the two i'll shout out that just missed my list king richard acting give that acting nomination to will smith king richard is exactly what it says it is will smith's film in and out even though it's about the williams sisters uh, tennis stars this is Will Smith. I am going to win the Oscar this year because of this film, the <laughs> movie. And the second one I'll shout out is West Side Story. Yeah, which probably would be on my list if I had seen it. Um, when I talked about this, um, I said that it's beautifully shot. Every frame's a painting. But it's a story that we know that, we, that has been told. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful film, beautifully acted. 
in but fact, not that original. Yeah, in fact, we watched uh, here at the at the at the this household. We watched the 1960 original in a beautiful Blu-ray print from a 2011 50th anniversary Blu-ray. For what's that story? Still holds up. Let me tell you. Yeah, like it's like it's a good film. It's well shot. It resonates today in the today's culture. Yeah, it's just not a new story. It's something you go in that you've seen, that you've heard, that you've witnessed already. Yeah, nothing new or spectacular from it, other than Steven Spielberg is the best at what he does. But the story itself yeah. is just fluttering away. Still excited to see it, though. I will make sure to uh, see that next month when it comes on to streaming. But in the meantime, let's wrap up for reals. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back with a wrap-up, final wrap-up episode. Or if you haven't listened to the other episodes, they may already be in your feed now. So go catch up with our favorite television shows, video games, and albums of the year. In the meantime, see you guys on the flip side of 2022. Unless you're listening to it in the future, in which case you can listen to us right now. Bye.